study this morning is in Romans, is from Romans 13, uh, the first seven uh, verses of that chapter. So I invite you to uh, turn there now. And while you're turning there, I will also offer an apology uh, in advance uh, for those of you particularly who were raised and told don't talk about politics or religion. I'm going to do both this morning. Uh, but it's not my fault. It's the Apostle Paul. It's, you know, he just you know, kept, has, offers his thoughts on these areas. Uh, and, uh, and since the, the, the good and the challenge of what we do here of consecutive expository teaching is we deal with things that we might otherwise choose to skip and we don't ride hobby horses. And Paul is dealing with the issue of government in the passage that is before us this morning. Romans chapter 13, beginning our reading in verse one, continuing through verse seven, hear the word of our God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Will you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come this morning uh, desiring to honor you as we lift your name in, in praise, as we are reminded of your love for us uh, and your grace that has been demonstrated to us, both of which are reflections of your glory. I come this morning being reminded, as the, as the prophet Isaiah said, uh, your ways are, our ways are not your ways, and your ways are higher than ours. So as we consider this word this morning, I pray that your spirit would be at work clearing away the clutter of our predisposed biases, our frustrations, and uh, any ideas that we have that are not rooted and fruit from your word and your ways. May we be committed to conforming to your ways, thinking what you think, thinking what you have revealed, living in accordance with your word. And in so doing, that we honor you now as an act of worship by giving our ears and our hearts and our minds to you. We honor you and worship you in our lives as we live out our lives in accordance with your way of truth. To the glory of your name, to the good of your people, and to our own joy, we pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. Every one of us has been born into some earthly dominion. Some earthly domain, uh, a nation state or a tribe, the, the Bible refers to these as the, the kingdoms of this world. And no matter where it is geographically, no matter what kind of uh, domain it is, we are subject to its rules and its rulers. And at the same time, Every one of us who has experienced God's saving grace, we are told, has been born again into a heavenly dominion, a heavenly kingdom, kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom that will never end, and a kingdom in which Jesus Christ is king. But the question for us as Christians, not only for us, but it's been a question for Christians um, throughout the ages, is how do these kingdoms relate to one another and how do our citizenships in these two kingdoms mesh? 
Through the ages, there have been a variety of different answers, and people have chosen to live in response to this question in different ways. There are some Christians who see this entire world as a sinking ship, and so they have simply chosen to withdraw as far as possible, deciding that participation in the, in the public square is, is not worth the effort. Uh, and so they withdraw in trying to live without any engagement with the civil or government authorities, choosing as much as possible to live disengaged and uh, listening and obeying what they believe the scriptures alone to teach. And while this is commonly thought of to be the ancient practice of mystics and, and monastics, it really has uh, not gone away. In fact, it was the premise of a very popular book that came out just a couple of years ago. Rod Dreher wrote a book called The, the Benedict Option. And this idea of just withdrawal and having as little association, little connection with the government and with the society as a whole uh, was the premise behind the book. Dreher looked at what he appeared, uh, thought was the landscape that was coming ahead, the, the likelihood and his estimation of persecution or displacement of Christians within our total society. And rather than to subject ourselves to that or to compromise, his answer was to withdraw. On the other hand, you see people throughout the ages who have responded in a very different way. Rather than seeing this world as a sinking ship, they have chosen to try to take control of the ship of state. And then they decide if they can get control of the helm there, they can steer it wherever they want it to. And all along, they use the authority and the power that goes along with the state to enforce their own beliefs and their own preferences. And these might be the two poles and two extremes by which people have responded to this question is, how do the two citizenships that we have, both with this earthly kingdom and with the heavenly kingdom, how do they relate and, and how do they mesh? But the question for us this morning is not how have people responded, but has God said anything? Has God given us any instruction on this issue? And if so, what is it the Bible teaches about this subject? And that brings us to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 is not the exclusive text on this subject of the relationship of the, the Christian with the state. Uh, and there are other texts that are important in the scriptures, and nor is it the exhaustive uh, text. I mean, in other words, there, it, it tells us a lot, but it doesn't tell us everything that we might want to know. But despite the fact that it is neither the exhaustive nor the exclusive text on this subject, most Bible scholars would consider this to be the foundational text, the place where we begin if we want to understand uh, the questions before us and come with the answers that God has given us. Theologian R.C. Sproul has said of Romans 13, in Romans 13, we find the clearest statement in all of scripture concerning the function, the role, the origin of the civil government. And Paul writes these verses in response, well, in anticipation to questions he expects in response to something that he brought up in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, where we've spent the better part of the past month, where God is speaking to us and Paul is teaching us how we are to live in response to the grace of God. Paul begins the chapter in view of God's mercies, reminding us that we are responding to God's initiation of the gospel, which Paul wrote about in Romans 1 through 8 particularly. In view of God's mercy, here's the way we're to live our lives. And he talks about that we're not to be conformed to this world. We're to be renewed through thinking what God has thought and as he has revealed. And then he deals with how we are to relate to other believers and how we are to relate to the world that is around us. And in verse 19, though, he, he says something that some would find somewhat stunning. In relation to the world that's around us, that has its own pitfalls and difficulties and challenges, recognizing that we fail one another and we offend one another and we at times hurt one another. And even more than that, there are people out there who with no care for anyone other than themselves, intentionally or just carelessly hurt other people. Paul writes this, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, that's great news in one sense, because we live in a world where injustice is very prevalent. 
And whether you are the subject of injustice or whether you just become frustrated because you see injustice that is perpetrated all around us, whether in our own society or around the world, it's important for us to recognize that God says injustice never goes unpaid. It may go along for some time, but ultimately God who is just, God who is in control, God who judges all things, he will bring justice about. And so if you have been the victim of something and it just seems like everything is overlooked, the day will come where justice is made right. You will be vindicated and those who have harmed you will experience whatever appropriate, a just just, uh, justice uh, at the hands of God. And that's an important perspective because otherwise we would be very frustrated living in this world where there is injustice that's all around us. But Paul anticipates this question and, and it's a natural question, it's an understandable question. he's anticipating people to read that and say, okay, I'm glad that in the end, justice will be done and that God is just and that God will exact justice in uh, in all circumstances. But do we have to wait till Jesus comes back? I mean, do we have to wait until the end, until the kingdom is fully established? I mean, we have no idea. Is that going to be tomorrow? Is that going to be, you know, another 10,000 years? Is justice just going to go undone until until that comes, until God uh, brings justice fully to, again to this earth. And, and Paul here in Romans 13 is saying, no, no, no. God isn't just waiting to the end, but God has actually has implemented a, a system by which justice is to be carried out here on earth. And that justice is government. Governments that have been raised up, governments that rule, governments that govern, all throughout the world. Paul is telling us this is what God is doing for the purpose of his kingdom. But as we explore this text and we take it apart, I wanna do so by asking four questions. We can look at it in a couple of different categories. The primary categories is what's the, the role of government and does government have unlimited authority? And then what is our responsibility and our response to government? That's kind of the, the broad overview of what Paul is dealing with here and what I wanna deal with this morning. But I wanna do so by asking four questions, four successive questions. The first question is, what is the the role? What's the scope of the responsibility and the authority of government? And what is our responsibility? The second question, what would be our responsibility to government as, as God has laid it out? The third question is, are there limits to government's authority? And then the fourth question would be, if so, then what are appropriate ways for us to respond to governments when they have exceeded or violated the limits of their authority? And so we begin with the first question. What is the role? What's the scope of the responsibility and the authority of government? People have a wide range of thoughts about the role of government. I suspect that many who are here and are part of this church perhaps resonate somewhat with Ronald Reagan, who famously said the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. But is that what the scripture says? What does God have to say about the role of government? And there are three things that we see in the opening verses here uh, that are important for us to recognize. Getting in in the middle of verse uh, one, well, I'll just begin to begin in verse one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And so we look at this first and foremost and we recognize that it is God who has established government. God has endowed government with authority. But the first principle we need to see is God established government with all authority because all authority belongs to God. God is the one who gave the authority, which means the authority belongs to him. All authority is God's authority. And that is a fundamental principle that we must always remember and that we must remind one another and that we must speak into this world. All authority is from God because all authority belongs to God. Second, along with that, God has ordered human society in such a way that as we live together in communities, 
whether they're in large cities or, or small rural villages or whether they're tribes that are isolated from anything. Uh, in whatever kind of community we live, God has ordained that there are groups of individuals who are endowed with authority to lead and to rule. Paul elsewhere calls these the governing authorities. And so all authority belongs to God, but God has endowed groups of individuals to rule and to guide and to govern over small areas, larger areas, nation states. And the third thing that we need to see that is revealed in these passages is that the role of these governing authorities is to do the will of God. As we look through that, that's what Paul is saying. So if you resist these governments that God has put, you're resisting God. The purpose of these governments uh, is, is primarily to do uh, what God would have to do, which is prim- uh, God have them to do, which is primarily to restrain evil and wickedness and to promote that which is good. And, and Paul refers to those who are in these positions of authority in this passage as servants of God. If you look in the Greek, it's interesting, particularly in verse four, the word for servant there is the, the word diakonos, the same word that gives us the office of deacon in the church is used by those who are in civil authority in the church. And maybe even more amazing to us is as you, you look down and, and you see um, in, in verse six, where to, the way that we relate to them is God, we're gonna see in a moment, we, we do so because Paul says they are ministers of God. And so we're seeing that the civil government is set up to do God's will, to restrain that which is evil, to promote that's good. And those who are in those positions are in those positions for the purpose of being servants of God, to being servants, uh, de- deacons really, to a, a culture as a whole. And in so doing, when they are faithful, they are ministers of God. Now, I suspect at this point there are some who are at least in their minds, chafing, if not outright, objecting. Looking at these verses and how Paul describes those in authority and then looking at those who are in authority over us or in different nations around the world, it would be very easy to conclude that this passage doesn't really apply because our leaders Many leaders, most leaders around the world are not measuring up. And therefore, these verses, as idealistic as they are, they they just don't apply to what we have to settle for in leadership of our nation or our state or even our, our community. And if that thought has crossed your mind, it's, it certainly is understandable. But there's a problem with that thinking. And the problem, which is not in the text, but is in the context, is at the time in which Paul was writing and considering the people to whom he was writing. He was writing to the church, to Christians who were living in Rome under the authority of Caesar. And depending on how you would date uh, the writing of Romans, it was possible that it wasn't just any of the Caesars, but it was Caesar Nero that he was writing about. And even if Paul's not writing at the time of Nero, Peter, who writes very similarly, says that we are to give honor to the emperor. He was definitely writing during the time of Nero. Nero, who is the madman who just absolutely hated Christians. He hated Christians so much that he would arrest some and dip them in wax and then line them up in his gardens and alight them at night so that he could look out over his gardens, human torches so that he could see his gardens. That's what he did with Christians. A man who was so deranged in his hate for Christians that he burned down his own city, according to many historians, in order that he could blame the Christians for destroying the city. I mean, this guy was nuts and hateful and oppressive and killing Christians, and yet, Peter and likely Paul were writing at a time where this guy is in control and he's writing to Christians and saying, Paul, Peter saying, give honor to the, to the emperor and, and Paul. And he's saying that 
You need to, these passages need to be uh, in submission to those who are put in authority. There's no one is in authority that God didn't put there. We don't always understand why someone is in the position that they're in, but we do need to always remember that the one in that position is in that position by God's permission, God's enablement, and God's ordination for his overall purposes to be worked out. And so when we look at our authorities, no matter how much we might find them lacking, we can't dismiss these words that Paul is writing here as being too idealistic and therefore they don't apply because he wrote them in a context and to people who were living under much more difficult circumstances than any of us who are here this morning have ever had to endure. And so Paul says, God, who has all authority, he has ordered that there would be civil government. Civil government's purpose is to restrain evil, to promote which is good for the benefit uh, of people. And in so doing that, they are God's servants. They are his, his, his ministers for the people. And we need to understand this, is that Paul's words are valid even in places and in circumstances where the government is broken and corrupt because even a bad government is better than anarchy. We see this at different times in history and, and revealed in, in, you know, in, in different uh, in different forums. Those of you who are uh, who enjoy movies, you might have seen the movie The Patriot. Now, I know those of you who are true historians in this room are already cringing. I've already been told by some of you how much they hate this movie because it is historically inaccurate. It's, you know, trying to take two or three characters, they mesh them into one, two or three battles and mesh them into one. You know, I, just get over that for the moment because this illustration is pertinent here. But near the beginning of that movie, Mel Gibson's character, Benjamin Martin, who very much believes that the United States should be separate from England, but is not willing to pay the price of getting that separation. He's in a gathering in Charleston of the leaders in South Carolina debating whether they should seek independence. And what Gibson's character says is this, why should I trade one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one mile away? In other words, he's not denying that the way that they were living, the way they were being governed was unjust and unfair and inadequate. But he is saying, if you eliminate the government entirely, then everybody becomes a government of themselves doing what they think is right and looking out for their own best interest and that actually becomes more harmful to more people than living under a tyrannical leader. Kind of shifting gears to another literary example, those of you who have either read or seen the movie Lord of the Flies. It's about a group of British schoolboys who get stranded on an uh, uninhabited island. And as they are there for a time, they decide they're gonna govern themselves. And because of the brokenness in all humanity and because of the sin in each of their own lives and people having a tendency uh, of wanting what they want, you see all sorts of alliances and backstabbing and deception and murder and killing. And it just, it is a total chaos. And where there is no government that is in place to restrain this is what happens in anarchy. It's even worse than a bad government because everyone suffers. I'm not justifying those who are in government and, and the abuses that go on around the world, but we need to understand in our frustration, what is the alternative? And no government is not the answer because everybody does what they think is best for themselves. And so Paul's very clear, this is the scope this is what government is supposed to do. The authority they have comes from God and all authority belongs to God. So the second question is this, so what is to be our relationship to the government? What are, what are, what are our responsibilities to the government that God has put over us? And we don't have to dig deep into this passage before we see the answer. Verse one. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And Paul picks it up again in verse five. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And so Paul's very, very clear here that our responsibility, the expectation for you and to me is to be in subjection, submission to the government authorities, because when we choose not to be in submission to the government authorities, we are in danger of resisting God, not just those who are holding office. And then Paul says there are ways that we are to respond to this in being submission. Number one is in, in obedience, that we are to keep the law, obey the laws that are there, whether they are minor or whether they are major, or whether they seem to be insignificant or whether they are matters of life and death. We are called to obey those laws, whether we like them, agree with them or not. There is obedience. And then Paul says, as we, we pick up in, in verse, uh, uh, verse 6, I'll go to the first five. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you must also pay taxes. Wow. That didn't make Paul particularly positive, happy, uh, people happy at that point, because people didn't want to pay taxes then any more than they want to pay taxes now. And so he's saying that we are to be obedient, and in our obedience, we are to pay the taxes that the government enacts upon us. And then he says things, there's just the idea of paying taxes isn't painful enough. He says this in verse seven, pay what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Those last two hit me. hit me strong this week as I look at our current and our recent political environments and even some of my own reactions to it. See, God's word is saying that I am to see that person and those persons who are in office as someone who has authority and therefore who is worthy of respect. They are worthy of respect, not necessarily because of their own conduct or their own positions. They are worthy of respect because God has raised them up into that office and that office is worthy of respect and worthy of honor. And I have to remember that Paul was writing at the time of Caesar and Nero. And I began thinking that many of us probably need to take a look in the mirror with these verses in mind. And many of us probably need to repent. One of my great disappointments over these past several years has been in some of our evangelical leaders who have responded to the critics of Donald Trump by saying, he's God's anointed. And my disappointment is not that they made this statement because the statement is absolutely true and it's something that believers need to be reminded of whether you're a supporter or not a supporter of Donald Trump. My disappointment is that I never heard these same evangelical leaders say that same thing the whole time that Barack Obama was president. And I've yet to hear any of them say that about Joe Biden. And so therefore, it would seem that some of the evangelicals have chosen on the basis of partisanism rather than God's principles to decide what is right and what is wrong. And if we become the arbiters of when we are going to apply God's word and when we're going to submit to God's word, and in this case, therefore, submit to the government and give honor and give respect to the office, well, then we are in serious trouble. It's, it's, that's the original sin. You can be like God. You can decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. It's not our purview. Therefore, it's not the place of any who want to follow Jesus to decide merely on partisanship whether they will be obedient to the word of God. I know that there are people in this church that have passions on a wide range of things. And I'm not scolding you without scolding myself. 
There are those of you here who are part of the, the never Trumpers. And you need to look in the mirror and ask yourself over the course of these past four years, have you been in violation of this instruction? And have you refrained from giving the honor and the respect to the person in office? Because the person, it's not the person, it's the office that is worthy of that respect. I'm not saying that everyone needs to like the individual who is an authority. I, I mean, there's a lot about Donald Trump that would seem to me that would be easily considered not likable. But if you are among the never Trumpers, did you move beyond the principles? No, his character is not what you wanted. Maybe some of his policies are not those that you believe are the best. But did you move into the personal aspect of things? There's a lot to not like about Donald Trump, but there's also a lot of lies out there. And many people, including many Christians, don't seem to make that distinction because we are governed by the thinking of the world and of social media, sometimes more than we are the word of God. And those of you who may not be supporters of Joe Biden, again, this administration is presenting certain policies that seem to me to be clearly in conflict with God's way, as did the previous and probably every administration. But do you move from the principal disagreement and then move into the personal and you continue to join the chorus of those that are screaming dementia and therefore disrespecting the one in the office, not on the basis of policy or in, you have the right of your preference of candidate. It's the way that God has raised up. It's a system that we live under. We need to look in the mirror and ask, does God's word have authority in our lives or only when it's convenient and it validates my predisposed preferences and biases? And I think the reality is a lot of us have failed and have therefore been a poor light in a dark world. We are fortunate that the answer for that is to acknowledge our brokenness, our failures before God. To plead not only on the wisdom or try to justify it in some way, but to plead on the basis of one who loved us while we were his enemies, one who came to uh, for us while we were in rebellion against him and who gave himself for us and to trust the blood of Christ. But as Jesus said, then go and sin no more. We live our lives conformed to the word of God that we engage in principled discussion and debate, but we do so in a way that is shaped by God's word. And therefore, even with those who might agree with us, we shine in a different way because the light of Christ is at work within the lives of those who believe and then those who obey. Christ. But the inevitable question then is, are there limits to government authority? I mean, clearly around the world, we have corrupt and awful leadership. We have broken systems in, in our own country. Are there, are there limits? And, you know, asking that question, I just, you know, imagine I had, the, you know, one of those old kids, magic eight balls, and shake it. And the answer is, um, it is decidedly so. There are limits to the authority of government. It's not explicit in this text, but it is implicit in this text. What do I mean by that? I think this text speaks to the question of whether there are limits, at least in a logical way. So I want you to try to follow me here in my thinking as I, I looked at this week. If God commands us to submit to the government because God has endowed the government with authority. And God has established the government and given the government authority for the purpose to, of carrying out God's purposes. 
And if we are in violation of God's will, if we are not in submission to the government that he has placed in authority over us, any government that is contrary to God's law and is, con is therefore contrary to God's purposes, and therefore they are as guilty of being unsubmissive to the authority of God as we are when we disobey those who rule over us. And any government that is intending and who is functioning contrary to the laws and to the will of God is, has forfeited their authority. See, Paul is speaking in idealistic terms, but even implicit in that is that that's the expectation. And if all authority, which is clear through this text, is actually belongs to God, the government can't go rogue. They either exercise God's authority, which includes God's ways, or they're trying to exercise their own authority, which they don't have in the first place. And therefore, they no longer have that authority. We see this principle exercised elsewhere in the scriptures in a place very familiar. In fact, Paul's language here at the end when he's talking about paying taxes brings to not only my mind, but every commentator I saw made reference to Matthew chapter 22. A very familiar passage where the religious and the civil leaders had gotten tired of the influence Jesus was having on the community and on the culture. Jesus' teachings had brought somewhat of a, of a small spiritual renewal which you would think that the religious leaders would like, except that it violated, it upset the status quo. Those who were in control, those who had power, those who were thought important, uh, you know, they were finding themselves feeling at least somewhat marginalized and they weren't gonna have that because they wanted the supremacy. And so the religious leaders and the civil leaders figured they needed to find a way to stop Jesus. And so as they gathered together and they talked, they decided they would do it, they would trick him. They had a question that somebody had come up with. We're gonna ask him about taxes because, you know, Everybody's passionate about taxes. And no matter how he answers, we've got him. Because if Jesus is to answer the question, if we ask him, so should the citizens, should the people pay taxes to Rome? And Jesus says, yes. The Jewish people who were the primary ones who were coming to him, who were living under the Roman authority, but it was mostly a Roman oppression, who were, you know, a, you know at best second-rate people. If Jesus says, yeah, pay the taxes to Rome, those people are never going to want to hear another word that he has to say. He just becomes irrelevant. He'll, he'll walk off and, and be forgotten you know, in a week's time. But if he says, no, don't pay the taxes, well, then we can arrest him and we can charge him with sedition. Most of you know the story. So with the crowd together, they go up to Jesus and say, teacher, we have a question for you. Is it right to pay taxes? They waited with anticipation. I imagine there was a pause. I imagine that Jesus also kind of had a little smirk on his face because I like snarky, but snarky's not necessarily godly. I'm not sure about that, so it might not have had that smirk. But he answers their question with a question. First he says, Somebody give me a coin. So they gave him a coin. And you can imagine the religious leaders saying, well, what's he doing? Is he buying time? That's, you know, it's a simple yes or no. Um, this is not part of the script. And then Jesus looks at the coin and he says, whose, whose image is on this coin? They said, Caesar. So he flips the coin back to them and says, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And people have continually marveled at their wisdom. They not only marveled, even in their frustration, the people then were marveled they had him. There was no way around them. Yet he gave an answer that was brilliant. And most people think about that and saying, you know, there's a wisdom. It's almost like a Solomon-esque. We're going to just cut things in half, give, you know, give Caesar what, you know, give Caesar his portion give God his portion, and you know, then everything is the way. But embedded in Jesus's language, which was very intentional, is more than sometimes we recognize. Because Jesus's question was, whose image is stamped on this coin? And the answer is Caesar's. But implied in that is, whose image is stamped upon Caesar and upon every person who's ever been born, just as it was upon the people who were first created by God? And the answer is God because every person 
who has been born. Every person who walks the earth is made after the image of the living and true God. And so the implication is not just give to Caesar his portion and give God to his portion. He says, give to Caesar whatever is Caesar's, but everything belongs to God, including Caesar, including the government, including that which you're supposed to give to him. Your whole lives belong to God. Their whole lives belong to God. Everything belongs to God. And so therefore, as we look at this passage and we ask this question, are there limits to the government? There are limits to the authority of the government because the government belongs to God and God is worthy of everything. And so while historically there have been people that use this passage and governments have chosen to try to use this to coerce Christians into complicity, into conformity, even when they know that the government is proposing things and living in a way that's contrary to God, we see in this particular passage by implication that is also true in all of scriptures that we disobey when the civil authorities either command what God forbids or we forbids what God commands. But it leads to the last question. So what are the appropriate ways for us to respond when obedience to government would mean disobedience to God? And I would have to say that that's not in this particular text, but I wanted to touch on that because I know that's an inevitable question. And I don't have the time that I really would like to study all of these things. We might have to do some other series at some other point, but I do want to touch on some of the things that are biblically instructive. And I didn't get them straight from the text. I got them from Francis Schaeffer, who uh, a generation ago wrote, a Christian manifesto where he deals with this issue of how, how, how are we to be faithful to God and responsive and live and obedient to a government, but when a government is not being obedient to God himself. And Schaefer was building off of the works of, of Lex Rex from Samuel Rutherford from centuries before. And, and Schaefer gives us four ways in which we are to respond when we see injustice, whether we're the subject of injustice or when injustice is going on around us. But he also gives us two, I would think, brilliant preliminary principles. It's not written that way, but he, the principles that are embedded in, in the chapters toward the end of that book. The, the first one is, is this. Schaefer says civil disobedience is a serious thing. It should not be engaged in for the slightest failure of the state. In other words, the states are all going to fail. We're all broken. We all make mistakes. Every state falls short. And so just because you disagree with something... And just because something is not ideal and it doesn't meet the conformity, it doesn't mean that we therefore reject the state and the state's authority. But Schaefer says this, it's, it, it's not to be engaged for the slightest failure of the state, but if the state is deliberately committed to destroying its ethical commitment to God, then resistance is appropriate. But the second preliminary principle is this, always use the least resistance necessary. What are the ways in which we are to respond? The first one is this. It is simply exercise the right of appeal. Paul did it. Having been arrested, he then appealed to the authorities and saying, hey, do you think it's right to arrest and to put in jail and to punish somebody who's a Roman citizen without a trial? And he was released on the basis of his appeal. Not everybody has the right of appeal. Peter wasn't a Roman citizen, so therefore he didn't have that same right of appeal. But you and I, in this country, we have the right of appeal. Every citizen, whether you were born here, or born of parents who were born here, or naturalized, you have the right of appeal. And so when injustice is coming, that is the first way of response. It is the least force necessary to appeal, appeal to what is right. But if you don't find justice in your appeal, or you don't have the right of appeal because someone is not a citizen, or in the dark parts of our history we have inequitably applied that, where some had citizenship, but it's really only relatively lately that some of the races gained citizenship prior to that. They, they had no right of appeal. If you don't have the right of appeal or you don't find justice in the right of appeal, then the second course of action is civil disobedience. Now, in modern times, there's probably no one better who has demonstrated this principle than Martin Luther King. 
who's seeing injustice, who technically having the right of appeal in some ways, but it was suppressed in other areas and didn't even have that right of appeal, at least the people that he was leading didn't have that right of appeal in all places, realized the only way is to just disobey these unjust laws, to bring attention to that so that these laws will be overturned. But the question is not whether it's effective or whether it's been done in appropriate ways or it's understandable, but is it biblical? Do we find civil disobedience in the scriptures? And the answer is yes. You may remember when, uh, when Peter and John had been arrested for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then when they got out, the authorities said, okay, we're gonna let you out now, but quit talking about this Jesus as if he's been resurrected. And what did they say? So is it better for us to obey you or to obey God? Hmm. We think God. Um, and so they continued to proclaim the gospel. They were violating, they were engaged in civil disobedience because what the state was then trying to tell them to do was totally opposite of what God was telling them to do. And we see it in the Old Testament as well with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were forbidden from worshiping as they were to worship and were required to, uh, to worship an entity that, that was not God. And they all refused. And they all therefore experienced punishment, but they had rebelled. But God it was at work within them and demonstrated God was in control of all things and then turned the heart of the ruler, at least for the time. And so there's a place for civil disobedience. Not only when we find our rights being suppressed, but when we see the rights of others being suppressed, if the right of appeal doesn't work. A third option that, that Schaefer mentions is this, flee. In other words, if the oppression is such that you are not gonna be able to make a difference and you can't live anymore in this way and you choose to just leave the town, leave the county, leave the state, leave the country where you live, that is not cowardice, that is legitimate. We see it through church history. The Huguenots and the persecution of the French because they will no longer comply, they left, many of them landing in South Carolina, some in Virginia. All of New England, as the Puritans were worshiping God and saw that authority and didn't want to fully comply with the, the, uh, the author, authorized church, uh, of the Anglican church. Uh, after generations of, of persecution, some of them said, you know what? We're just gonna take it on the road. We're gonna move. We're gonna create a whole new state, one where we can worship and practice our faith freely. Biblically, we see this as well. Mary and Joseph did, being told that the authorities were coming after them to, uh, to you know, kill their child. Uh, they said, you know, we think time to, time to move from here. See Paul doing it as well. In, in, in a passage uh, that Paul is writing, and it's easy to miss the humor in, in what he's saying, uh, in, as Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he's kind of um, self-deprecating uh, when he talks about an incident that had taken place in his life. Now, it's not, the context is not embedded in the text, but the original readers would have known it. In that time, the Roman, in the Roman world, uh, there was a medal that was always given to the soldiers when there was a battle who would scale the wall. The first one over the wall would get a medal that would be equivalent to our, our Medal of Honor. And so Paul makes reference to that in, in writing to the Romans, talking about his own way of, of doing things. And here's his heroism is that while the Roman soldiers were getting a medal for scaling the wall and entering into the fray, Paul says, yep, and so here's my pride. I got let down the other side of a wall in a basket. Um, in other words, when he was told that the authorities were coming to arrest him and, and perhaps to, to kill him, he escaped, he fled and had the leaders of the group that he was teaching lower him out the window in the darkness so that he was able to leave. Fleeing is not cowardice if that's what is best for your family and for you. It is perfectly biblically legitimate. And then the final thing that he says, when necessary, is force. But, he says force, but never violence. As believers and as the church, it is not our call. The sword has been given to the state, but not to the church. We do not use violence to advance the kingdom. We do not use violence to overthrow the government but we may use force. In other words, coming in force, showing power, showing solidarity, 
that there is an injustice and that we're not going to stand for that anymore. And perhaps the best biblical example is the Exodus, where force was used. Moses went in defiance of the, of, of the Pharaoh, and the power of God was demonstrated. There was force, but the people never demonstrated violence. Force is used when necessary, but that should not be confused with the church or individuals taking up arms against the state. There's more to consider here, and I wish we had time, and I'm happy to have discussions to unpack, and I'm far from the expert in terms of the implications and, and the when to implement. But we do need to consider those things and then shape our worldview and our responses biblically and not just conveniently. As I wrap up, I, I, I couldn't help but be reminded of the, the famous statement of the Dutch theologian, educator, publisher, prime minister, Abraham Kuyper, who was a true Renaissance man. When he said there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And so as we consider this passage and we consider our own lives, we must always remember that while the, this, that while the tasks differ, the government and the church have the same responsibility, which is to serve God for the purpose of the good of God's people. It's the responsibility of governments of the nations to create places where people can become what God intends, intends us to be. A place where we can practice our gifts and where we can pursue our hopes and our dreams. A place where we can worship and serve God freely. And that's what government is established to do. And the task of the church is to speak into the society that has been created, to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ against competing worldviews wherever we are. That the people who are in need, people who are hungry, can hear how they can be reconciled to God and blessed to be his people. We proclaim that truth at every opportunity that we have. And citizens of this earthly kingdom are to respect and honor, to the, honor those to whom it is due to be submissive so far as appropriate. But we must also always remember we have only one king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, who rules over all and will reign forever. He alone is worthy of all glory, honor, praise, and allegiance. Father, we come as a people who are in need of grace, not only for forgiveness, but to live as you would call us to live. We are a people who have been graced and pray that your work of grace within us would be uh, continuing its work. That we may live according to your ways, being a light and salt to the communities where you have placed us. We seek to live peaceably among all, but we are shaped and renewed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, be at work in us that you might be in work through us to the praise of your name. We pray in Jesus. Amen.